It's time for Cubicle Insanity. I've got Kim here with me and I'm Tammy. We're back together again to talk about our favorite thing, corporate America, or all the crap that happens at work. Our podcast is a, is a discussion about the real insanity from cubicles, from leadership and leaders to experiences with life in the cubicles. So Kim, let's get into our latest cubicle insanity. Hot damn, he sh shouted with excitement. There's some moose in that building right there, putting up a, a serious fight. He pointed to the building across the street, his weapon trained in that direction. It was clear he thought there were, these were moose. These moose were hardcore. They killed on one of our own Iraqi soldiers when we entered the building and wounded a few more. We've been hammering them all day, and I've worked to get some bombs dropped in, in on them now. He was in the midst of coordinating an airstrike with the U.S. Over, US aircraft overhead to wipe out the enemy fighters holed up inside the building. But something didn't add up. It was a blue-on-blue -blue fratricide. Worst thing that could happen. Well, hot damn, Kim. What a start. <laughs> this is an excerpt from a book that we're going to talk about, Tammy. And um, so this was an event that occurred. The book itself is called Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink and Leif, Leif Babin. So this was an event that occurred. And so like, like in corporate America, right? You have an event, something may or may not did, may have gone right, may not have gone right. So of course you get kind of called in to say what went on, especially if it didn't go right. Have you been in any of those types of meetings? For sure. So what does the manager do? What does your manager do? Or whoever the most senior person is that was asking about what didn't go right? How, what, 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 what do you do? What does the team do? Um, okay, well, first of all, let me say it's typically usually stressful because when that thing doesn't go right, you know that there's going to be conversations. Yeah. So there's stress already, nerves. And I'm trying to think of a couple of examples. And I think, so two are sort of coming to mind. One is, um, you go into that, you know, room, you go into their office, whatever, you know, it happens to be. And it's a bit of like a, um, I'm gonna call it almost like a parent child situation going on mm -hmm. where they're like, um, well, clearly you've done something wrong. So explain yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's the tone of the whole conversation. And, and it puts you in a very defensive position where maybe, I mean, I don't know if that's, right or wrong, but yeah. it's very uncomfortable. Yeah. The other thing I can think about is um, I have had it where my boss has been a little bit more understanding in that it's more of a conversation like, ew, like, that wasn't great, huh? And it's like, no, that wasn't great. And it becomes more of a conversation um, where you feel like you can explain and talk and, and maybe that's uh, sort of, you know, like therapy about it. Like, let's talk through it all versus the I have to be defensive that I did do the right things and I did make good decisions but some unforeseen maybe thing came up um so I would say I, I'm thinking those are the two I can think of yeah all right let me go back to the book let me let me read you what the authors have written I stood before the group whose fault was this I asked to the room full of teammates after a few minutes of silence the seal who had mistakenly engaged the Iraqi soldier spoke up it was my fault. I should have positively identified my target. The author. No, I responded. It, was, it wasn't It was your fault. Whose fault was it? 
I asked the group again. It was my fault, said a radio man from the sniper element. I should have passed our position sooner. Wrong, I responded. It wasn't your fault. Whose fault was it, I ask again. It was my fault, said another SEAL, who was a combat adversary with the Iraqi Army Clearance Team. I should have controlled the Iraqis and made sure that they stayed in their sector. Negative, I said. You are not to blame. More of my SEALs were ready to explain what they had done wrong and how it had contributed to the failure, but I'd heard enough. You know whose fault this is? You know who gets all the blame for this? The entire group sat there in silence, including the CO, the CMC, the investigating officer. No doubt they were wondering whom I would hold responsible. Finally, I took a deep breath and said, there is only one person to blame for this, me. I am the commander. I am responsible for the entire operation. As the senior man, I am responsible for every action that takes place on the battlefield. Wow. And their mouth is dropped open. I would imagine so. Um, so have you ever in your life been in a meeting? No. Where your boss has taken responsibility? No. And ownership? No. I, am I, am I, okay. I'm trying not to be flippant here, but I don't think so. I, off the top of my head, I can't think of any time. And, and that would be even with just maybe me, me and my team in the room. But also having maybe their, you know, boss or, you know, other leaders in the room. Off the top of my head, there's not a time I can remember where my boss took responsibility. Yeah. Yep. I, I, I as I read this book, I thought about my, my entire career. And I cannot think of a situation where my boss has taken responsibility for a team failure or a team misstep mistake whatever you want to right. call it a little goof yeah mm -hmm. now so have i have i done that so i'm trying to think when i have you know been a people manager and had teams reporting to me i don't know that i've used those words but and maybe i should have i mean those are good words to use yeah really good words but i think i've done it more in the fashion of um you know, like, oh, darn it, this happened. Let's talk about it. And then I am like, okay, don't worry about it, guys. I got this. I'm going to go, you know, yeah. do the rest of the communication about this. Um, did I ever say I am the one and only responsible for what happened here? I've not used those words. And those are powerful. Yeah, I, I've thought about it myself. I, I don't know that I've said those exact words. I, what I can recall is one time I was kind of in the hot seat, and I you know I did say, look, my team did all their jobs right. Um, apparently, I didn't do something right, but everybody that was on the team, I, they I did think, what they were supposed I to. think they all did what they were supposed to do. Yeah. So I didn't say those exact words, but talk about impactful Talk about what Coming am from I? The top. What am I going to do different going into the office on Monday? Yeah. Yes. Words we forget how meaningful they can be. Yeah. Yep. So this book. Um, let me tell you a little bit about this book. It's it's. I, I'm going to say this. It's the best 
management leadership book I've probably read in my entire career. You know, we, um, you know, throughout corporate America, government organizations, whatever organization you're with, you know, you get to train, get sent to different classes and about leadership and this, that, and the other. And a lot of times there's a book associated with yeah. it or referenced. Um, this one, and they're all okay. This one I think is is the the best, and because for a couple reasons. One, there's a lot of um, examples in here, like what happened in the battlefield, and what the, the the authors have done is they've converted it into, like what, how to translate that into kind of everyday, non military life. So the civilian world, corporate America, government, not NGOs, um, nonprofits, whatever you want to call it. And they give practical experience and practical advice. And um, let me let me just tell you a little bit about the the authors. Um, so it's written by two US Navy SEALs who led them who led the most highly decorated, you know, special ops units in the Iraq war. Um, they along with their brothers as they call them retook Ramadi and was a pivotal turning point in the in the in the war um here's what's also kind of interesting and heartbreaking is um in these teams that these guys led there were two medal of honor winners or recipients I should say Mark Lee and Michael Mansoor and um these guys gave the ultimate sacrifice Mark Lee they talk about in the book a little bit was um killed by a, he was the first seal to be killed, and he was killed by a sniper. Michael Mansoor threw himself on a grenade in order to protect the rest of his teammates. Wow. Think about that. Think about in in the office. Is there anybody that you've ever worked with that would throw themselves on the proverbial grenade, right, to save the others? I I mean. I think a common phrase we use is get thrown under the bus. So are they throwing themselves on a grenade? No. Yeah. Yep. The, uh, there was another um, seal that lost his life, but it was related to in, uh, the, a sustained injury, but it was actually a result of a follow-on from the surgery, and that was uh, Ryan Job. And probably the most well-known out of this group of men is um, the... Chris Kyle, a.k.a. the American Sniper. Yeah. So he was part of this this group of SEALs. Um, so I this book is, is absolutely just fascinating. So let me um, go back to the book. Well, for the bit. listeners, I'll just let them know there's a lot of little Post-it notes <laughs> as markers in the book with yeah. lots of different colors. So I don't know if the colors mean anything, but... There's well, obviously I, a lot of very good things in there with a number of uh, yeah. Things I was that you... trying to mark up a bunch of different stuff, and the, there's there's too much to cover in one podcast. I will say that, um, you know, we could spend five hours on this if you wanted to, but we won't put everybody to sleep. Um, so this book is is written in three parts, and it's. Um, they talk about extreme ownership. Of course, that's the title of the book. And let me let me tell you what they, let me go to the book and, and read what it says about extreme ownership. On any team, in any organization, all responsibility for success and failures rests with the leader. The leader must own everything in his or her world. 
There is no one else to blame. The leader must acknowledge mistakes, admit failures, take ownership of them, and develop a plan to win. The best leaders don't take don't just take responsibility for their job, they take extreme ownership for everything that impacts their mission. Wow. So when I first read this, initial thought is, okay, is this micromanagement? Right. Right, you know, they take responsibility for everything and they right. know everything that's going on. Well, So does that mean they have to be involved in yeah touching yep the answer is no and this book kind of goes through that and gives some examples um you know this they also talk about when they talk about leaders you, you've heard the phrase uh there's no bad teams there's only bad leaders i've heard it so they have in this example in the book and it talks about and I'm, I'll summarize the the um, example that they give, but they talk they go into great depth about some of the training that they go through for SEAL training, and apparently they have to lift these big heavy boats and swim out into the ocean and paddle the boats to a certain point and do several other things that they've got to do. And the example that they gave was they have like six or seven different teams, six teams I believe they said, and. There's one team that has, they just win every race. And the makeup of the team, you know, apparently wasn't like the biggest, the strongest, the burliest of people. But like at the other, there was another team that lost almost all of them. And they were like the biggest guys and, you know, the burliest and everything. And you would think just from appearance, like, you know, making those assumptions. Right. That the big strong guys be able to paddle real fast, get out there strong, blah blah, and right. get get everything done as quick as possible. Seems like a physical competition, yeah. right? Well, what they wound up doing is they actually switched the leaders of the two teams, and the the leader from the team that was not winning as much went to the winning boat, and the guy that was leading the winning boat went to the losing boat, and so they did a couple more of these exercises. Well, guess what happened? The Burleys started winning with their new coach. Exactly. And so as they kind of like thought through this and they, you know, pulled the two leaders in apart to kind of talk, like they kind of figured out that it was how the winning boat, the leader built the rapport with um, the team. And it kind of goes back to the one episode that we did with when we interviewed Liz. She talked about, you know, having a rapport with your team to get the most out of them, right? Right. Build that trust, build those relationships, yeah. yeah. So that's what they did. And you think, oh, it's the military, they've got some magic. It's... Right. They just ordered them to do it. Right. Yeah. Or I order you to win. Well, they... <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's... it's um, it, it's um, It was kind of interesting that it was just... It really is about the leader and how they built the rapport. The other, the other thing they talk about is, well, let me, let me back up, Tammy. Have you, have you ever had a manager, been a part of a team where they come out and said to you, yeah, hey, Tammy, you know, we got to do such and such project, but, you know, it, 
We just gotta get it done. Oh yeah, for sure. Did it like inspire any confidence? Like, do you believe that your boss thinks this is important? Yeah, no, not at all. And it, um, it's one of those things where you don't get a lot of satisfaction out of doing it either because you don't feel right from the beginning. It doesn't feel like it's appreciated work. It's just yeah. something that has to get done. Yeah. Yep. So let me, um, let me read from the book here real quick about believing and they talk about, and there's quite a bit in the book about that, about believing, because if, if the leader doesn't believe in the mission, how can you get others to believe in the mission? Right? Yeah, true. It says a, a, a leader must be a true believer. If they don't understand what is being asked, need to be needed to ask, how can you convince others? If you don't believe or are clear, once you understand what is being asked, then you can explain it to others need to make sure everyone is on the same page in order to achieve the goal. Yeah. I mean, do you know what? It seems, what's funny about that is it's one of those things that seems obvious, but how many times are we not good at that? Right. Or why, why do we ever say, why are we doing this if it's something that we're not yeah. all sold on? Yeah. Yep. The other, you know, I think about when I was thinking about this, I think about, you know, the general communications. And we've talked about it on the podcast before about when you send out a communications to people and you say, hey, we're going to reorg or we're going to do X, Y, and Z for the company. We're going to change benefits. Well, you and I might be so in the detail of the conversations that we forget to give those details out. So we're not clear. We don't state the obvious. Yep. Yep. You know, there's so many good nuggets in this book, but let me kind of keep cruising through this a little bit more. Um, they have a section, it's called Check the Ego. Ever have any ego around in <laughs> corporate America? Well, so I'm interested to hear what this part is about because um, I don't, when I hear that, like check the ego shirt, like I have heard people say it and, and whatnot, but the people with egos, do they know they should be checking the, the egos or are they like, oh yeah, you over there, you should yeah. check your ego. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious about this. So, um, let me, let me read from the book. It says ego clouds and disrupts everything. The planning process, the ability to take good advice, the ability to accept constructive criticism. It can even stifle someone's sense of self-preservation. Often, the most difficult ego to deal with is your own. Yeah. Everyone has an ego. Ego drives the most successful people in life. Okay, that's interesting. I've never thought of it that way, that everybody has an ego. But it's true. I yeah. Mean, yep. Some are just yeah larger than others. Right. But everybody does. Yeah. One of the examples they give in the book is about new guys coming into the teams and um, they're, you know, like, hey, we're, you know, badass, whatever unit division they might be. And they they didn't want to adhere to the grooming habits of the new group that they were joining into. And so they just kept wanting to be 
you know, hey, I'm going to not shave. I'm going to have long hair. I'm going to do whatever, however their grooming habits were. And finally, the the most senior person of the, the new unit that they were trying to work within just kind of said, you guys need to get out. Just get out. Because if you're not going to try to fit in and you're kind of trying to be, you know, these, I'm going to use my words, renegades and, and kind of do your own thing and not put your ego aside because you guys are awesome at what you do. You're a specialist or whatever. Mm-hmm. You got to put your ego aside to fit in the rest of the team so that the team can accomplish the mission. So I thought that that was kind of interesting that, um, one, the manager or the senior officer had the guts to say, get out. Despite how much they probably really needed these specialized services. Right. So think about, you know, what we go through every day. You bring in a consultant, right? Mm-hmm. You, but sometimes they're jack wagons. Yeah, for sure. And you're like, I cannot wait for these consultants to get out of here. Yeah. So that's interesting. I don't want to derail you, but I'm I'm thinking about that. Everyone has an ego. And so when you're coming together to do something to accomplish something, you know, some project, some initiative, you know, whatever it is. How does, I mean, I mean, obviously the leadership, like you said, it's just incredible here, but how, how does a leader, if we think about corporate America or just, you know, workplaces, you know, in -hmm. general, how does that, how does that leader create the culture? I'm going to say that like, Leave your ego. It's almost like sometimes, you know, you go into meetings and they say, leave your title at the door. Everybody here is equal. Right. Okay. I've never been in one of those meetings where titles actually got left at the door. Yeah. Um, but how does, in you know, in our world, how do, how, how do we get our leaders to create those types of cultures? Yeah. I don't know. Read the book. Yeah, read the book. <laughs> Leave the book on their desk. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Send them a link to this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. They have in here a, a, a principle called um, cover and move. And um, the question is, you know, have you ever been part of a team or project team that's been divided into sub-teams with each of them having specific tasks? Sure. So they, they talk about that in here, and they talk about how Everybody has a specific task, and you, they kind of go through the example of, like, they're in a battle, and, you know, you got to move forward, and the other one's, like, protecting you as you run. They're shooting, and it's back and forth, back and forth, and that they also are watching what the other ones are doing. So everybody kind of knows what everybody's doing right? so that they're covering each other so that they can move forward. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was kind of an interesting analogy of cover and move of how they've depicted this in the, in the book. Yeah. Um, that, it, to me, that sounds like, um, I mean, obviously, it's hard for me to relate because their jobs were, you know, life and death, where mm-hmm. when I go to work, you know, on Monday... It's not a life or a death type of a, a situation, but to me, again, that sounds like a really beautiful culture, a place I would want to be a part of where we think of each other that way. Yeah. Yep. So it says, 
Cover and move, I'm going to read from the book, is the most fundamental tactic, perhaps the only tactic. Put simply, cover and move means teamwork. All elements within the greater team are crucial and must work together to accomplish the mission, mutually supporting one another for a single purpose. Yeah. Right? It's per- not, well, if I'm, I'm going to try to outshine everybody over here doing my task. Right. Yep. Because the success means we all work together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. But yeah, doing each our own thing. Yep. So the other, so cover and move is one of their laws of combat. One of the other laws of combat that they talk about is simple. And in corporate America or in outside of the military, I suppose, you hear the uh, phrase um, kiss, right? Mm-hmm. Keep, keep it simple. Well, stupid is the... But it's being changed to be more politically correct to say, keep it simple, sweetie. Oh, it is. No, well, that might raise some flags, but um, thinking about the principle... <laughs> <laughs> you know, hey, keep it simple, sweetie. And then you're like, oh... Did you just call me sweetie? Yeah, and then we go a whole other path. <laughs> All right, so thinking about this principle, at the most senior levels, they give out massive goals to achieve. And it can be demotivating, Right. But if you use this principle, keep it simple, break it down into clear and achievable tasks. So, you know, I can think about like the group I'm in and the manager came out at the beginning of the last year and said, hey, we need to achieve X, which was, you know, like 8% over the year before. I, the the employees were just like, "Are you kidding me?" There's no fucking way. <laughs> I mean, grumbled and they grumbled for the entire year. But what we started to do, so we actually used this simple um, early in. I mean, we we had so much pushback, but what we did is we kind of broke it down for everybody. Like, okay, if this group does X, and they do one percent. You guys think you can do 1%? Because last year you did 5%. You think you can do 1% this year? Oh, yeah. Hey, no problem. Okay, go. And we started doing that. Mm-hmm. And what's what's interesting is we roll up our numbers. Um, we actually beat this, ma- goal. this massive goal. But through breaking it down so people felt like it was more attainable, achievable, mm-hmm. they were more on board versus feeling like this big heavy cloud over the top of them right yeah when you feel defeated before you even start yeah yep. so the the next principle the third principle in the um in the laws of combat is called prioritize and execute so let me read from the book and my notes might be off here a little bit with my many tabs <laughs> uh let's see um it says Let's see. This is bad. Dreadfully exposed on a wide open rooftop with no cover. We were completely surrounded by higher tactically superior positions in the heart of extremely dangerous enemy controlled area. Large number of enemy fighters had total freedom to move here, had attacked us through the day and knew our location. So they didn't kind of prioritize what they were going to do. If you read through all of this, um, As in business, things can be bad, right? You can be surrounded by folks. You can be surrounded by the enemy, in this case, like the competition. Sure. 
and not know what to do. What, um, what the book says is relax, look around, make a call. How often in, 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 in corporate America do we get in the middle of trying to like beat the competition to win the market, you know, X percent, and we get so frenzied up, we got to have data, we got to have this, we got to, no, let's try, you know, everybody gets into this frenzy. Yeah. I love this. Relax, look around, make a call. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, I, you're exactly right. We get into these frenzies, and I think what happens is um, you didn't specifically say it here, but when, I, you know, in the workplace, when this happens, we sometimes get exclusive, meaning mm-hmm. maybe it's just leaders go into a room or, a, you know, a particular business or something like that, and they start making these frenzied decisions in the vacuum of that conference yeah. room um, where – the relaxing part, I think, is really what is like, okay, we need to consider, you know, all of these things. Let's stop and breathe mm-hmm. um, instead of eliminating some of the people who could really be helpful in the situation. Because yeah. this excerpt I just read from this book, they kind of got the enemy all around them. Yeah. What are they going to do? Just like freak Panic? out? So I love that, hey, relax. Mm-hmm. Look around. Um, and make a call. Yeah. So the the um, last point for the laws of combat is what they call decentralized command. So let me uh, let me go back to reading a little bit from the book here. Um, we've got enemy armed fighters on top of the building. Appear to be snipers. The radio blared. The concern and excitement in the, Amer- in the American soldier's voice relaying the information was evident. The report was alarming, immediately struck a chord with everyone on the radio net. Enemy snipers were deadly. While they could never compare to the level of skill training equipment that our own U.S. military snipers possess, this, the enemy certainly had some skilled marksmen who inflicted substantial damage, regularly killing and wounding American and Iraqi soldiers with accurate rifle shots. Now, let's see. The two different elements of our task force unit were out there in the... Uh, okay, we'll stop there. Um, so they've got multiple things happening at one time. Yeah. They've got their CO or commander. I don't know the exact terminology that they actually use. Um, trying to navigate everything that's going on. This the point about the decentralized command is the most senior person can't control everything. So if everybody kind of knows, because they talk about what's going on in the radio, everybody's hearing what's going on, so people can start making their own decisions about what they need to do because they're trained, right? Yeah. It's just like in your job, you are trained to do what you do. Mm-hmm. You hear what's going on, you make some decisions. That's versus going to the boss and saying, hey, is it okay if I do X? Yeah. Right? Yes. The boss has to trust you. The boss has decentralized their command to say, you will only do it my way because in the heat of the moment, you might have to do something different. Right, because there's there's a lot of decisions that might have to be made in that one split second. Right. And so it's that sort of, um, 
you know, giving that authority to those people who work for you that they will make good decisions yeah. when you're not able to to be there. Or if it's, you know, um, oh, Kim, help me. What's the term I'm looking for? Like, sort of, you have sort of the scope of control. You have sort of the authority to make decisions anytime, you know, yeah. without me. But then also if I'm not around and it, maybe it's a decision we would make together or or I would make that I am giving you that authority in those situations that I trust you. Yeah. That you um, would be able to make good decisions. Yeah. Yep. So the other thing, Kim, before we move on, that as I was talking, that also sort of uh, clicked into my brain here is, so, you know, sometimes you either are given or you take the authority. Um, right. To, to make a decision in whatever situation. But there's also that, um, and you've sort of been building up to this, and there's sort of that um, the peers around you mm-hmm. also have that trust in you. It's also, yeah. you know, that you will trust them to make the, the decisions in, in the situations where they need to, and they will trust you uh, when you need to. Or, you know, collaborate if, yeah. if the situation allows but you've sort of been building, like setting up the team that working together to be successful and now having the authority to make those decisions. But I think it's not only trust of the leader, it's trust of your entire, you know, team, you know, extended team. Yeah. Yeah. Think about the Think about what you just said. In our everyday lives, in our four walls of corporate America, the government organizations, nonprofits, whatever organizations we happen to be within, it's not life and death with bullets flying at oh you. God, no. Right? Right. And we we have, I think, a bigger propensity to not trust one another because we've got our silos. I want to, you know, knowledge is power. Those yeah. types of things go on. That's kind of the how things have traditionally worked. But you think about these guys out on the battlefield. If they don't implicitly trust one another, if they don't, over communicate continuously communicate yeah because if you as you read through this book a lot of it is about communication and trust if you all don't know what each other's doing where everybody's at they you could have what they call fratricide or that blue they call it blue on blue fratricide where you're killed by or wounded by someone on your team versus the enemy the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing yeah exactly yeah and I think that's amazing to have it instilled in you to have that type of communication, that type of yeah. open communication and consistent. Yeah. And I'm going to say concise because it's not like you have five minutes to, you know, carry on about the entire situation. Right. Yep. So the, the third part of this book is what they call sustaining victory. And the first section is called Plan. So let me uh, read a little bit from the book here real quick. So when you think about planning, first question, right? What is the mission? Yeah, what's the goal? Yeah. Planning begins with the mission analysis. Lead- leaders must identify clear directives for the team. Once once they themselves understand the mission, they can impact, impart, excuse me, this knowledge to their key leaders and frontline troops tasked with executing the mission. A broad and ambiguous mission, let me move my note here, results in lack of, of focus, ineffective execution, and mission creep. 
mission creep. Scope creep. Right. Hear it all the time. Right. Yeah. So the other thing that I heard you say there too was, um, and again, it goes back to communication, is uh, what we talked about just a few minutes ago, and that is everyone believing in the mission and knowing how to communicate about it. So when I'm hearing it from somebody, I know that they believe this is the right thing Mm -hmm. to do and they are passing that on. And so therefore, when I carry that message on, I believe in what we're doing Mm -hmm. and I understand what we're doing. Yeah. Yep. And I, I, you know, I, again, I think back to last year and the company that I'm in and we had such lofty goals and the, the leader of the team, he, he was so inspiring because he believed in what we needed to do and it, how it impacted the customer that he got everybody kind of rallied around it. And they didn't even really realize that they were rallying, but his message was so inspiring, clear, why we were doing something that people were just like, yep, I'm in. We yeah. got to go do this. The book also talks about the needs to delegate up and down the chain of command. Um, in this case, you know, managers must have ownership of their task. It's what we'd call, you know, skin in the game. How often do, you know, like when you're thinking about the mission or the plan, do managers not have their skin in the game? It's just like, well, you know, hey, we passing down, you know, we got to go do this. That's because that's what my boss wants. Yeah. Mm -mm. Mm -hmm. One of the worst ways to lead, I think. So, um... Leading up and down the chain of command, uh, building off skin skin in the game. How often would you say to yourself out loud, "Are in meetings like, are you freaking kidding me?" Right? Yeah. Are they serious? They don't get it. This can be heard by both bosses and by the team, the employees. Right? Yeah. So, in this book, they write about the principle of leading up and chain of up and down the chain of command and, and this is my interpretation as leaders it's you know it's your responsibility to ensure that you that your bosses understand what you're doing right so again earlier podcast we talked about managing your manager yep um do they, they do they you know have they answered all your questions do you think that they have a clue are you clear in what uh, they want you to do so have you asked all the questions? So again, as I think about leading up and down the chain of command, you have to ask the questions too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm at fault at times when I think about, you know, I'm, hey, we need to go do this. And I'm like, yeah, okay, I think I know what they want us to do. And you start marching down a path of, of doing something. And then you get like, what the hell are you guys doing? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, we thought you wanted... Nope, that's not what I wanted. Okay, well, in the example of extreme ownership, I didn't ask the right questions. Mm-hmm. I didn't ask enough questions to make sure I was clear. Right, right. You can also say the boss, you know, as we play devil's advocate in this conversation, that the boss... Didn't have that compelling message. Right. That detailed message. Yeah. So... You know, always think about, am I asking the right questions? And when I think of, you know, this one for me is probably a, a, a real key point. I think the whole book is filled with key points, don't get me wrong. But this one to me really, um, because you gotta, you got to manage your boss the right, the right way. 
right? You can't go in like, hey, boss, you don't know, you know, this was after, <laughs> you know, you didn't tell us anything or whatever. So you got to kind of think about how you approach the boss, mm-hmm. right? Because there's some nuances that way. Of course. And ask the right questions. And I think over time, the boss builds the trust in you because you're like, okay, hey, they want to know a little bit more there, make sure they're doing the right thing. Um, at the same time, the boss, it, I think it teaches the boss like how to right. articulate even more. Like next time, okay, hey, they ask all these questions. <laughs> right. Hopefully they get a little bit more self-awareness and they check their ego. Mm-hmm. And hopefully when you're asking the boss additional questions, like their ego doesn't get in the way, like, why are you questioning me? Why I made it perfectly clear, right? Mm-hmm. That's why you got to kind of be yeah. thoughtful how you ask the questions. You can't be a jerk about it. Like, well, you didn't tell us, you know, you didn't do this. Yeah. and Yeah. Or that's really a stupid idea, boss. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're gonna. We, I, um, I can think of several people that I've worked with over the years yeah. that yeah. are. They just always have a lot of questions. Yeah. And so you know that when you go to talk to this person, they're gonna ask you a ton of questions. Yeah. And whether that's you know, you're the boss in the situation or you, you're the employee in the situation, and you just know there's gonna be a lot of questions. It does make you think differently when you go to approach that person the next time because you go in thinking. Oh man, they're gonna ask me so many questions, yeah. and maybe you're a little bit more thorough um, as you go through the information. Right. You know, right. so I, I, hopefully, yes, I, I would say hopefully all the egos are checked and everybody can just be polite and professional. Yeah, but when you think about that person that always asks you a lot of questions, does it change when you after you learn that about them? Do you say, hey, Susie Q, let me kind of walk through everything first. Let me give you all the information I have or I think I have or what I know and then ask your questions? Yeah. And I think also that person sometimes, you you know, if they carry through and they do good work and, you know, now that they've asked all these questions, they're a believer and they're going to, you know, be successful in whatever that, Mm -hmm. that thing is. I think there are those certain people where you will go back to on purpose just to get them to ask you questions to make sure you've thought through yeah. everything. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the next section is um, called decisiveness amid uncertainty. Tammy, do you think that there's a 100% right solution every time? Uh, there probably is, but there's multiple. Yeah. Let me read. Uh, this is one of the biggest rational uh, realizations that combat leaders realized during their combat deployment. The picture is never complete. Leaders must be comfortable with this and able to make decisions promptly, uh, be ready to adjust those decisions quickly based upon evolving situations and new information. Agile. Agile, pivoting, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it. But, yeah, you, you think about that. How often have we... How often, and I think I think it's better in the last say ten years than what it was maybe before that, where you start working on a project or something, new information comes in and you get yeah don't worry about that just stay focused. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. You're like but but that that 
that'll win us like millions of dollars in business or whatever it might be. And you're like, yeah, don't don't worry about that right now. You, you, right. We already made the decision of what you're working on. Just carry forward. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so thinking back, so, you know, part of my past was on the IT side of things. And so some of that comes into how those things evolved in projects like, okay, maybe we need to involve more people earlier on because now maybe we're not missing information or as information changes, we get it sooner so we can adjust accordingly instead of, okay, let's just go in a room and finish what we said we're going to finish, then come back. Yeah. And it might be all out of date by that right, point. Right, But, you know, you also get, like, hey, things evolve and you get new information. Yeah, you got to be careful because, again, it talked about, like, mission creep, scope creep, yeah. right? So mm-hmm. sometimes you do have to say, no, we need to, that's great information. Let's put it on the parking lot. Or, yeah, yeah. We'll come know. back to that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the last um, concept here, it's called discipline equals freedom. The dichotomy of leadership. Interesting concept, huh? Wow, that sounds fancy. So this basically sums up the entire book. Discipline equals freedom. It is a dichotomy. Think about that. Discipline, very structured, regimented. Whereas freedom, no form, open, fluid. The concept that you are disciplined in what you do will have the freedom to do more. So... Think about our daily work, right? Think about what you do. Think about what any of us do in our daily work. There's typically a standard operating procedure. You have to do certain things, right? Mm -hmm. Great. So if you have that, that should make you more effective, more efficient, right? right? Because you're not kind of guessing, do I click this button? Then do I do that workflow? Then do I do B? And then do I go back to Z? Mm -hmm. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Right. Mm -hmm. You kind of know what you need to do. Mm -hmm. That's great. And it allows you the opportunity to do more things. This concept ties all those points together in this book that you, if you own what you're doing and you know what you're supposed to be doing, it gives you time to do more because you're not guessing what's going on. True. Yeah. It's about teamwork. It's about communicating. It's about executing and it's about sustaining. Because how often do you work on something and then all of a sudden you're like, okay, now we got to go fix that again, right? Yeah. Well, it's that back to information hoarding where if we are disciplined about what we do and we do share, you know, the old, well, you know, so-and-so got a much bigger and fancier job. Now they're gone. We don't know what they did. Yeah. Yep. And so now all this, it's like lean, uh, you know, principles, like take the waste out. Right. Focus on that process, get it defined so that there's value coming from it. Yeah. Without all this other monkey business. Right. Optimize it yep. so you get it done and move on to something else. Right. That's well oiled. And now we have all this additional time that we previously have been wasting right. there that we can do other things. That's yeah. our freedom. Yeah. That's so if it. you know if you know how to do that workflow, get it done in two minutes so you can go solve some other business problem or mm-hmm. Help somebody else that needs help right. with something. Or because now it's so um, optimized, other people can do it too. Great. It doesn't take a specialist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's that's a 
the book in a nutshell. It's wow. it's a very very interesting read. Again, it's the book is called Extreme Ownership. It's written by two U.S. Navy SEALs, retired, um, uh, Jocko Willink and Leif Leif Babin. So I'm going to thank them for their service in uh, writing this book. So Tammy, what are your thoughts? Wow. Okay, so I see why you had so many little tags in your book, <laughs> so many little post-it notes uh, marking things in there. Um, I'm, I know we did not cover as many things as you have marked in yeah. there, but this was, it was a lot of information. But, um, so uh, you had said that you know these are things that actually happened in the battlefield now being translated to what workplaces across the globe can do to be successful mm -hmm. and it hit the mark. Like each one yeah. of those are very applicable, even in our uh, cubicle insanity where it may not be life and death, but there's still, you know, great um, principles or, I mean, I used the word culture before and so much of this to me is, you know, culture is one of those words that I think is hard to define and yeah. we've had several conversations right. about it. But I think these are all great points that build into those uh, cultures, whether it be a team or a company culture that makes people want to work there. It makes it a, a great place to work to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, Kim, I'm going to call out and state the obvious. Okay, let's state the obvious. Um, so as you were talking, I, I tried to uh, take down a couple of key things. So let me know if I hit your, your favorite ones. Um so I'm going to say you started with extreme ownership and the powerful impact of a leader taking complete ownership mm -hmm. over their organization and what happens there is amazing. So I'm calling that one out because I think every individual can be that person, whether you're an individual contributor, whether you're a people manager, whether you're a leader, every day, everything you do, you can be that person. You can take ownership of everything and not be defensive about it be proud of it and things will go wrong mm -hmm. but still take ownership of it take responsibility yeah. for it so i think uh so that was i mean we could probably stop there because that's so right huge um we, we talked a lot about relationships and i think this has come up on several of our podcasts so i think good to call out again um you called it no bad teams only bad leaders and really building the the trust, um, building those relationships. Um, and uh, I believe this is the story you gave about the rowing. It's not always uh, don't judge a book by its cover. Right. You know, right. it doesn't matter what you think that person's skills or expertise is, but still it's building the relationship mm -hmm. and, and working together to be successful. Um, uh, then the next one... Um, uh, I'll, I'll call out is you said everyone has an ego, which uh, I think that every time we read a book, there's something that's so obvious, but you never think of it that way. So having right. those words, everyone has an ego. Check your ego. Um, your team will be better with everyone checking, mm -hmm. you know, or the organization will be better with everyone checking their ego. Everyone has one, um, but the team will be more successful by putting sort of the team ego before your own. Right. Right. Um, 
<laughs> you talked about keeping it simple, sweetie. <laughs> I'm never going to say that again. That, yeah. that felt awkward. Um, but, you know, like you were giving the example in your own personal experience about breaking down those goals and making them achievable. Mm-hmm. I think it's it, it gives everyone that challenge they're willing to accept, excited to accept, and they engage in, in what, what, what is happening, what's going on with the team. Um, you talked about relax. We might be in a very stressful uh, situation, a lot of things going on. Um, I believe you said in the book, they said, relax, look around, and make a call. Yeah. That's hard to remember when you're in a panic. Yeah, I mean, the book talks about, like, the being surrounded by the enemy. Yeah. We don't have that in the cubicles. Right. Do we? And we still can't relax. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so another, another yeah. challenge to everybody. Relax, stay calm. Every, take a deep breath. Remind everybody, take a deep breath. And let's talk about, uh, let's talk about this. Um, you talked about what was called in the book decentralized command. And I think that this is something that our egos get in the way of. And that mm-hmm. is, uh, as a boss, make sure that your uh, direct reports know that they have authority to make decisions. Mm-hmm. And, and if you need to talk about where that authority ends and where you'd like to be involved, do so. But each one of us can have that discussion also with our managers and say, where, you know, where do you want me to involve you or where are you okay? And start building that trust. Once you start making those decisions, it, you know, it builds that trust. So um, trust your boss to make a decision, work with them to trust you to make a decision, but then trust the people around you. Mm-hmm. Don't second guess them. Don't go to the, you know, kitchen or you know snack area and be like oh i can't believe they made that decision right um it's all about the trust and supporting um i've got obviously this was a a big one there's a lot of things to state in the obvious um you talked a lot about communicating and Mm -hmm. and it goes back to even you know set those goals in a way that everyone understands communicate in a way that everybody can support um that miss that mission um Along with that, you talked about making sure that it's very clear. So if you're the one communicating, be open to the questions or just be brave enough to ask the questions. And some enough, sometimes I do think you have to be brave. Other times it's you know just conversation and it's no big deal. But if you feel like you need to ask a question, um, again, be the owner. Take that responsibility and right. do it. Um, okay, so getting here to the end. Um, you talked about decision making. Make a decision. There is, I, I think I might have said this before. I love this little cliche. Uh, don't let perfection get in the way of progress. You can't just talk and talk and talk and talk and not make decisions. Make a decision. But if you need to adjust it, that's okay. Be open to that. Um, and then the, uh, the last thing that you talked about was this uh, discipline equals freedom. And so to me, the takeaway that we can all have from this is those things in which you can have some definition around um, or those lean practices around, celebrate that. Because by having that defined gives you the time, um, the creative space to be engaged or challenged by other Mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. Kim, did I miss anything? I think um, you hit a lot of the highlights some of the key points, there's a gazillion other nuggets right. in this book. So thank you. And um, 
Again, the book is Extreme Ownership. The authors are Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. I'd like to thank our listeners. Thank you to all of our active military and veterans. And stay tuned for our next episode of Cubicle Insanity.